All right, welcome back to the Truth Is Dumb podcast with your host Adam Crochet. Today I'll be talking with Ted Long, a bass player. I'll do my best to not mumble so quickly, and we'll cover so many topics. We'll make a head spin. Coming right up on the Truth Is Dumb. Here, you have a man, Ted Long. Oh, we're rolling. Cool. Welcome to the podcast, Ted. What's up? <laughs> All right, man. Yeah, we're just, we're rolling already. And uh, <coughs> right in the beginning, I like to tell people a, a little, kiss the guy's ass a little bit, as I often do, you know? <laughs> Ted Long is a bass player, three in a row. I, I'm going to switch soon. But a uh, great bass player, plays all the different styles. A man who's well-known in the jazz circles, but also uh, handle any kind of thing that you throw at him. He played with Irma Thomas. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Is it really true, Kai? That's really true. It's amazing. It's kind of amazing, right? Is Eric Bernhardt in that, too? Or <laughs> Eric landed the Marsha Ball. Marsha Ball. I was confused. These which, days. they're like, Irma and Marsha are super good friends. So yeah. We end up a in a lot of, like, I end up in a lot of situations, like, running into Eric. It's really and awesome. I play with Eric in his band sometimes, so. Right. The, uh... Wait, which one is which one is his? He's got like a jazz group. It's called the Noggins. Sidemen of the Apocalypse. Okay. And then he's got this really crazy fusion group called no- Noggin. Noggin, yeah. And I've played with both of them, and they're both pretty sweet. He's great. I'm gonna have to have him on the podcast. Super nice guy. Oh yeah, and a great musician. Yeah. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's very cool that guys like you guys, younger cats, fall into some of these gigs with some people who are uh, real well experienced. Yeah. Man. So they recognize it's, something in you, but you also have. Learning shit. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, absolutely. Have you learned a lot on that gig? On the Irma gig? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that's definitely my biggest sort of resume bullet at this point. Um, which is funny in a lot of ways because it's one of the easiest gigs I've ever had. Mm-hmm. But it's also just like, yeah, it's definitely my first kind of big, big thing that I've that I've had. Uh, what makes it easy? The music itself is pretty easy and straightforward because it's a pop gig. I think pop gigs are kind of always easier to roll into because for the most part, um, you're kind of like kind of like playing in an orchestra or something where you, you roll up and you know pretty much before the gig starts what you're going to play. Mm-hmm. You know how the song goes and you know the, the tunes and stuff like that. And then it's just a matter of making the music, which is the easy part. With, like, a jazz gig, even if it's just background music, especially for a bass player, where you're spontaneously composing, like, a walking bass line, let's say, over um, over a harmony that is sort of constantly changing, um, there's a lot more sort of cerebrally involved with playing that music, and there's a lot more room for error. Um... Two different ways of being in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, but you find it easier. Yeah, I think personally, I think, if yeah. you know what's going on, to just execute it. Do you internalize it first, or you just have a a, a way of memorizing things? Oh, like wrote verses. Kind of depends on the gig, but like let's. So for for Irma, we'll take that gig. There are a lot of things that make the gig really hard, but I can get into that. I can get into that. Um, so Irma's performing, She her whole catalog is fair game on mm-hmm. a gig. 
we don't roll into the gig with set lists, mm -hmm. and we do all audience requests or mostly audience requests, except for like jazz fest when we know what everybody wants to hear. Um, so, and it's kind of a nostalgia gig in a lot of ways. So, for the most part, I'm trying to do my best to nail the original baseline to the song let's say. But where that gets tricky is that most of the guys in the band have been playing with her for a decade, two decades, three decades. Mm -hmm. So they're not playing like what the original parts on the, on the album were. So for me to play the bass part like it was on the original album uh, doesn't make a lot of sense mm -hmm. in a lot of situations. Also, a lot of the songs she's recorded four or five times. You know, there are two or three really high-selling versions of of Have My Husband or It's Raining or something like that. So different generations of people are familiar with different versions of that. Then there's also, like, the live shows versus the records and the live arrangements that they put together in segues and medleys and stuff like that. So for me to just pull out like the original cut of one of those songs, like it was in the sixties and try and learn it note for note is really helpful. And I did a lot of that, especially when I started playing with her, but then there was this process of like learning to adapt as much of that. Cause I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, one of these Motown obsessed, like, oh, you want to get it exactly like it was on the record mm -hmm. kind of guys. But, you know, I then have to be grown up and say, okay, let's make that work for what everybody else in the band's doing right now. Mm -hmm. So for me, like, I know on a track like It's Raining in particular, which is probably one of her most famous songs, I, I have this whole thing I do where, like, I play the first chorus the way it was in the 60s, the second chorus, the way it was on her early 90s live record, which was, I think, nominated for a Grammy. Um, then, like, the third chorus, I do some stuff that I got off of YouTube watching her bass player before me um, playing it. And then, like, the last chorus, I just kind of do me or whatever. But her attitude, mm -hmm. because I've, you know, I've been in rehearsals with her and stuff, is, like very much you do you and she doesn't want me to play all the original stuff right she wants me to just play the song how i would play it so then there's like okay how would i actually play it versus how am i going to play it to make it sound good for you and please the audience because like so I'm, I'm having to fulfill like do the record justice because these are historical recordings mm-hmm do justice to the audience who expects like to hear a certain sound or a vibe. Do justice to the guys in the band who are playing this stuff night after night. And, like have the way that they do things. They add extra hits and you know the little figures here and there. And then please myself and like what I know that I can do or what I want to do or if I have something I want to add. So when I approach a gig like a pop gig. There's a lot of me trying to resolve playing what's note for note on the record 
versus like just kind of this jazz understanding of the way harmony works and the way that chords work and what I think will sound good and you know trying to mash it all together and make it sound musical. It seems like you set your your own personal bar pretty high. Uh, I think that is a from a band leader point of view, when you hire somebody, you say, just do you. A lot of times it's because you're looking for them to do what they're the best at. Right. And then you go, I can decide whether or not I like that afterwards. Yeah. Of course, for your side, right? You don't want to be on the losing end of that. No, yeah. So it's always, yeah, I'm, I think I rarely, I rarely, like when someone says, do you, I'm usually just saying, all right, what do they want to hear right now? And, you know, I one time went to uh, try to send a, a drummer, a track of a BB King song, mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, I was trying to explain what I wanted. I couldn't really get it in words. So I said, "Let me just find it, and I'll send him the yeah. YouTube video of it." And uh, the first video I found of him playing the song, <clears throat> the drummer he had was doing the exact same thing that I wanted my guy to stop doing. Yeah. So I can't send him that one because it just reinforced what he's doing. Yeah. Then I found one where the guy had uh, all his cymbal stands set up and no cymbals. It was on a TV oh, show, like maybe they, he thought there were symbols and there wasn't. Wow. They just did the gig. So I watched about a dozen of them before I found the one where I was like, yeah, that's what I want. But what I noticed over it was that B.B. King, he was playing the same yeah. every time. Yeah. He didn't care. Yeah. And he, I, I feel like his audience didn't really, you know what I mean? Maybe a very yeah, small maybe. percentage yeah. was worried about it. So in the end, I think that that bar that you're setting and you put it on the audience... You put it on all these different people, but really it's you. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in, in, in the end, in the end of the day, it's what's musical. It's like, what's happening now? Uh, so, my two good sort of thoughts with that. Mm-hmm. So, one, I had a gig for a while with Jerry Jumanville. Mm-hmm. Do you know him? Yeah. Great. Old honker and New Orleans character through and through. Um, you don't tell people any of this. Oh, I mean, Jerry's played with everybody from uh, Dr. John to Bette Midler. He took the famous solo on Rod Stewart's Tonight Tonight. Exactly. He, uh, if you ever get to look at the, like, I have it. I bought it on Amazon. Uh, it, I, don't, I don't know if it's still in print, but I have a copy of Festival Express. Okay. This DVD that chronicles the crazy sort of train tour through Canada that happened after Woodstock. Okay. And on it, it like, if you, you have to watch it really closely, but there's, like, this shot in the train, and it's this crazy party. They had all these bands that went on this huge tour after Woodstock. And you'll see, like, a 19-year-old, 20-year-old Jerry Jumanville in a train car jamming with, I think it's, like, Buddy Guy, Janis Joplin... Um, Jerry Garcia, like they're just jamming. They're all super messed up. Right. And they're just jamming on a train. Like, I can't remember who else was on this tour, but it was just total insanity. Anyway, so he. So Jerry ended up being a local guy. He ended up, yeah. So he did a lot of time in LA, did a lot of film scores, did a lot of, um, uh, sort of, uh, production work played with everyone and their mom he used to play opposite Stan Getz mm-hmm. like this famous club in LA and then he makes his way back to New Orleans and plays R&B with Dr. John and arranges some of his records and some of the Alan Toussaint stuff as a, like a horn arranger I mm-hmm. think is what he's really good at but he's like a bebop guy 
who always wanted to play R&B and was into like Fathead and Long right. John and stuff. Right. So I had a couple years that I played with Jerry, uh, and he's crazy. He's just a crazy, kooky, old, fun guy. Um, and I had a couple years that I played with him just like Frenchman Street jazz gigs. Um, but it's funny, like, when I started playing with him, he would start playing a song. He would get kind of mad if the tempo wasn't right. Mm -hmm. And at first, I was like, okay, I'm going to play exactly what he counts off. So he would count off a tune, and I would just lock into whatever that count off was. And then there was, and then sometimes that would, that would make him mad. And then there was <laughs> like, sometimes we would have a really good drummer, mm -hmm. like a celebrity drummer coming in and playing. And I would try and play with that guy because I knew that he would put the time right where it needed to be. And Jerry would get mad. And then finally, after a while, I realized like all I had to do for Jerry to think that I had good time was play with Jerry. Yeah. And that sort of became my full-on ethic of doing a gig, mm -hmm. which is I figure out who's writing the check, and then I just try and make them sound good. Like, mm -hmm. if they're, like, whatever, there's a, if they're rushing, if they're dragging, if they're doing whatever, it's like, I just play along with them. And doing that, I've kind of been able to fool a lot of people into thinking that, like... You have great time. That I have good time or something. Yeah, when it's like, even with people who I know don't have good time, they think that I have a good time because I'm playing along with them, which is kind well, of... What I would offer on that, in a way, is that you... Having a metronomic time, very even time, is right. good and useful. Right. But if you can only do that, you'll be limited. And a lot of people sometimes uh, have a thing where they go, look, I'm on the beat, and if you stray from it, then uh, you got to find back where we were. But then you go watch actual people play. You know, I saw Willie Nelson play, yeah. and he flipped the two-beat all the time, and the band just right behind him flip it back, yeah. just like that. And what are they gonna do? Yell at him in the bus like, "Hey, yeah. man, you keep flipping the beat." What's yeah, the right. point of it? I mean, it? What about when you play with a guy who plays a lot of solo acts, right? So he might oh, do a little bit of an ebb and a flow oh, when he right. does. But if you can follow it, like Tom Waits's band or something, right, right, then you can get a lot of purchase out of having the tempo drift a little bit here. Oh, and there. sure, sure. It's a tool. So, so that became sort of a, an ethic for me. Was like, I just want to make Irma sound good. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to make the music sound good with whatever is happening, whatever chord changes guys are trying to play. You know, I like to think, because I'm a huge chord change guy, I'm really a harmony geek, and I write all my own charts when I do a gig. Mm -hmm. Even if I call a standard that everyone knows, I usually try to pull out my chart that has the, what I think the chord changes are. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, for me, and, and because I play so many situations where like people will be like, oh, that's a wrong chord change, or that's a wrong change, or that's a right change, or like, this is the hip chord change, this is the hip way to play. And it's like, none of that matters to me. Right. Whether you want to play Jelly Roll Martin changes or John Coltrane changes, whatever. We just have, but I am really big that we're all playing same. the same changes, right. or the same, or like, even if it's, it, do, it doesn't have to be perfect. Like, if a, if a guitar player, keyboard player plays something different, it doesn't matter to me that they played something different or they want to substitute something, they want to do something. Mm -hmm. I just have to know what that is so that, so that, when, that when that starts to happen, 
I can hear it and make it musical. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what I tell people is like, yeah, I'm totally, you know, I don't care how we interpret a tune or chord changes or where we want to go with it or what the solo performer wants to put in or if beats are dropped or added or subtracted or tempo speeds up and slows down. As long as we're on board with it mm-hmm. and as long as, you know, ears are open and, and and stuff like that, it's fine. Like, it makes no difference to me. It's a funny thing, right? Because you, you have that thing, uh, if it sounds right, it is right. Right, exactly. So you play something, you go, the guy says, that's you can't play that minor. It's got to be a major chord. You go like, are you judging that by how it sounds to you? <laughs> yeah. Because it well, sounds, because I brought it to you saying that that sounds the way I want it to sound. Right. So there, to me, there are no right and wrong chord changes. They're just the chord changes that are happening now. Yeah. So it's like, this is like, this is happening or the time or anything. Else. I would even go further to say that every, like every, one chord to another chord is going to have a quality to it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when you add a third chord to that, you can increase the complexity, right? Because you always go back to the first chord mm-hmm. or do the second chord. You know what I mean? It's, for the the, num- the amount of complexity that happens as you string together those things, but even just between any two chords, is going to be a sound, and maybe in the process of trying to express what you want to express, you need that sequence of chords. Sure. It could be anything. And look at what the Beatles would do—a thing like a major to minor or a major major seven. These like they just did that. And it sounds sweet. It really captured the zeitgeist. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah, all those little things. Yeah, Beatles stuff. If you look at Stevie Wonder, I mean, all these guys. Yeah, that's... Where it's like... Yeah, they. I mean, they really managed to transform 20th century harmony. The ear of the public. Yeah, in the ear of the public. Stuff that... Because I mean, you can handhold somebody yeah. through something that they're not familiar with. Yeah. Get them, away, get them through there some sort of way. Yeah, so... I think it's it's all about yeah it's all about trying to figure out what's musical at the time I, I forget what we were talking about. Let me ask you a truth is dumb question. Sure. Sweet potato. You got one thing to put on it. What do you put on it? Oh, um, I really like sweet potatoes. Aren't they one of the best? Are we baked? Uh, I'm gonna say you can pair it however you want, but if you're only gonna add one thing to it. If you had one, if you had a choice of one option, what do you do? And it's a sweet potato. It's not a regular potato. No, it's a sweet potato. Right. Damn. Uh, brown sugar. Brown sugar. Yeah. Okay, that's incorrect. The answer is nothing. I'm going to okay. write down brown sugar for you. All right, thanks. It's kind of a trick question, but... Yeah, it's totally... Do you do, do you do the sweet potato with nothing on it? I mean... After? I think the last time I ate just a straight-up sweet potato. Yeah, I guess, because I don't really know how to cook that well, so I would probably not have It's awesome. On it. You just heat it up. Let me ask you, okay... So, in the course of your career, has there been, thus far, has there been a point where you, uh, I'm going to ask you the counter to this question also, okay. has there been a point where you were, you were like, you know what, this is ridiculous, I don't know why I decided to do this, where the resistance was high, and you consider, you're like, you know what, maybe I'm not on the right path. Did you ever have experiences? Failures, right? Right. They say, yeah, success, you know, the secret yeah. ingredients of success is failure. Yeah. You had these experiences? Yeah. All the time. Like every day. <laughs> every day. Yeah. Right? So tell me a, uh, like a small one, one that maybe resonated with you where you, uh, <laughs> it was where it was. Man, I have, have some, some distance from it now. Oh, I have some worse gigs for sure. And I 
I certainly have a lot more of those than I have, like, oh, this is great. This is what I want to do with my life. Like, oh. um, That's the next question. <laughs> so, so things that... Do you go back and yeah. forth gig to gig? Like, if you have a good gig, do you feel like you're great? And when you have a bad gig, you feel like you're terrible? Um, yeah. I'm <laughs> trying to think. There's a dichotomy in each of those, which is, like, depending on how you want to deal with your responsibility. So like, so, so if you have a bad gig, you can think that, okay, this was a bad gig and you can put the responsibility or the blame on it being bad Mm -hmm. on external factors. Or you can say, this was a bad gig because I made it bad or I, it was bad because of what I did. Right. I could have gone another way. So, What's funny in those situations is that typically the gigs where you're mad at yourself are were actually great gigs and you failed to rise to the occasion. Mm-hmm. The gigs that you're mad at external factors are probably gigs that didn't rise to your expectations mm-hmm. of what the gig should be. So it's kind of funny that you generally that for me, I generally feel worse on great gigs where I didn't do my best mm-hmm. or gigs that were fine. Like there was nothing, like it was my fault that something went south. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually the, you know, so, so those are the bad gigs, good gigs. There's the same sort of dichotomy. Uh, one of my favorite things that I ever heard uh, Victor Wooten say, because, you know, I just, like any bass player, I worshipped him for a long, long time. Um, you read the book, too. He's got a great book for any musician. Uh, yeah. The music uh, Lesson, which I have right there. Music the Lesson, yeah. I've read both his books. He has a good biography, too. Um, and I've been to his... A great musical thinker. Yeah, oh, great. You went to his camp, too? Went to his camp. I've done cool. his camp, and uh, I was like a groupie in high school. Like, we used to go follow his tour around, and um, I have a friend... Well, one of my early music teachers was like spiritual friends with him, so we got to go backstage and go to his sound checks and like hang out on the bus when Flecktones would come to town and stuff. So I, I worshipped him when I started playing. And man, the first time I saw him give a clinic, he said this thing that I is, is one of the most transformative things anyone ever said for me, and I wish I remembered it more in the heat of the moment, which was whenever something wrong happens on the bandstand. Whenever something that you, you don't like happens, whenever there's a problem, even if it wasn't your fault, even if you didn't make a mistake, even if whatever's happening is beyond your control, what could you have done or what could you do to help avoid it or fix it? Mm-hmm. So he has this sort of mentality of like taking responsibility for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is really cool. And I would like, if I lived my life the way that I thought I ought to, I would probably, um, try and in sort of a positive way, take responsibility for good gigs and bad gigs Mm -hmm. and say like, Oh, that really trifling background music, Frenchman street gig or whatever, like bourbon street gig, like, that was awful. What could I have done to make it better? Mm-hmm. Like that would be 
a really good way to, to be a musician. Like, and I think that's what sets guys like Victor apart. Um, Extraordinary. Yeah. Right? The yeah. ordinary thing. The ordinary is thing. frustrated. So, okay. So now my, my other spiel about this is that um, there are uh, four pillars of gigdom. There are mm-hmm. four pillars of a gig. There's the cats, the music, the money, and the logistics. What you lack in one, you have... So, so sorry. So, those four things make up a gig. People, money, logistics. People, money, logistics, and music. The music itself. So, those four things make up a gig. Mm-hmm. The best gig in the world would fulfill all four things. The worst gig in the world would have none of those four things. What you lack in one area, you can make up for in others. So the way that this works is so you have the people that you're making music with. Um, Do you like them? Do you get along with them? Are you coming musically from the same place? Are they easy to work with? Simple stuff like that. Um, who are you making music with? Assuming that you're, I'm a bass player, so I don't get to play solo music. I've always said I'd rather do a shitty job with my friends than right, a great absolutely. job with people I can't stand. And I've, I, man, I have a gig that I do every week, and I used to play with serious heavies that I would call, and I would just like, I wouldn't even take a cut on the gig. I would just give them the whole check. I would say, you know, I want to play with this guy because I'm going to get a lot better. And then I realized, like, wait, this is way more fun if I just do it with my friends. Mm-hmm. So. Um, people. The music, is it your bag? Is it your thing? Do you like the music? Is the music, are there musical things that are rewarding about what you're doing? And that's different for everybody. But, um, I know that I've played some music that I I really don't enjoy playing. And I've played some music that I really did enjoy playing. Some music that I was like, wow, I wish I could do this all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's part of just being a blue collar musician is like, unlike being, say, a singer songwriter or, or a pop musician, like I don't really get to choose the music that I play most of the time. Mm-hmm. Even if it's my gig, if it's at a restaurant or a hotel or somebody's wedding, like I'm playing more to the gig. Um, it's you very have a technique that you use if you like, rather than just say, I'm not going to do that gig. You have a way of, uh, without, uh, ruining the gig for the other people. Do you have a mental thing that you do to say, well, I don't enjoy this, but here's how I keep my bar high. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's my job. I'm a blue collar working bass player. My job is to go into different musical situations, whether I'm comfortable with the music or not, and try and make everyone making music with Mm -hmm. sound good and sound their best and sound the way that they want to sound. So to that extent, I also will say that unlike a lot of musicians, I don't have the Ted Long experience where I'm going out and I'm in a venue or a situation or recording where I get to do exactly what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So if that were the case, there might be some different things. What about your weekly? I see you listed as doing a weekly. Right. It's Ted Long. Yeah. So that is. So then, and, and that's really important to me musically. It's good that you bring that up because I don't have a band. I don't have a website. I don't have a CD. I ended up with this gig at a hotel. It's at the Columns Hotel on St. Charles 
on Friday early evening happy hour. Um, it fell in my lap because um, I did it with a trio, and then these two guys that were just college buddies of mine both left town. So the gig kind of fell in my lap. I didn't really want it necessarily, but what I found to be immensely rewarding about it is that for somebody who's been, I've been playing bass half my life, and I've been band, in bands ever since you know I was 14, joined a punk band. It's the only time that I get to once a week say, hey, I'd like to play this song, or no, I don't feel like playing that song. So that's really important to me and really powerful to me. Just to have that one little time when I get to say, this is kind of what I would like to do, or this is what I'm working on, or this mm -hmm. is a song, you know, I get to play my favorite music. Now, in reality, it's at a historic hotel. I'm playing in the ballroom of this very nice uh, uptown landmark. So, so, it's, so, got so it's not like I can bring my whole effects rig and play a bunch of Aphex Twin songs. Like, I definitely... And keeping it within boundaries, but musically, it does give me allow me a little bit of freedom to kind of explore. Um, and I also get to hire the band, mm -hmm. which goes back to people. It's it's the only time in my life that I really get to decide. Like, I would like to play with this person. Let's see if I can get them to come mm -hmm. do this gig. So you were saying I've heard it as three things: uh, I like you, I like your music, or you're paying me. Pick two. Yeah, Basically, that's right? great. I love that. That's great. So the fourth one that you added was, was logistics. logistics. So, so this is this is huge. So money it's does it pay well or is it worth my time? Right. Okay, that's an easy pillar. Logistics. This is the this is this to me is probably one of the most important. I want to say for people who are listening though who are not familiar with the New Orleans scene though, just because it's a gig that you don't want to do doesn't mean that you're doing it because it pays a ton of money. And the right. opposite where you do a gig that you really want to do for not a lot of money, that is of course very common. Yeah. Um, but all, all, you know, everything in between. Yeah. For me, like money is probably the least important mm -hmm. of those pillars to a point. You know, there's a certain point at which money becomes very important. Um, but for the most part, I'm a guy who, who, as long as I'm free and available and I'm not making, you know, haven't committed to something else or I don't have a huge money making opportunity somewhere else, I'm probably going to take the gig mm -hmm. unless the other three are that bad. So, um, you're going to say about logistics. So logistics, this to me is probably the biggest because, and, and this is probably a uniquely New Orleans thing, but I can imagine it in like New York or something. I heard about a gig recently. It's on a riverboat playing solo banjo, strolling, which for people that's kind of like mariachi, like walking from table to table, from group of people to group, strolling solo banjo on the deck of a riverboat for four hours. Windy up there. Windy in August in New Orleans. So you're outside, oh, and you're in a and you're in a you know shirt and tie. Yeah yeah. So you're in a tie outside in the heat of the sun, hundred degree heat, hundred percent humidity, on a riverboat so, like, that's a whole set of logistics, like having to get to the riverboat, having to get on the boat, dealing with being stuck on a boat for several hours, and the people on the boat, playing by yourself, strolling, walking around. You also sing. And so, there's parameters, right? There, those so, are another guidelines. Oh, and then, yeah, and then it's like, like these people want yeah, to. and then you're on a riverboat playing banjo, so it's like you can only play a certain, you know, you're playing Louis Armstrong songs, basically. Right. So it's like, that, to me, <laughs> is a disaster of a gig, 
Not that I wouldn't play a three-hour gig of Louis Armstrong music. Not that I wouldn't play a solo banjo show. But to do it outside on a riverboat in August, like, logistically, is pretty terrible. And, and I think we run into a lot of situations like that with, like, we have Mardi Gras and parades. I have plenty of gigs that I said no to next month because I know it's a shit show trying to get through to get parade there. routes and park. And now that they j- jacked up the parking meters, that's oh, yeah. a huge thing because now, now, so I have a gig I do every Monday morning. I play a brunch in the quarter. Uh, it's a five or six hour brunch. They just double and, oh, and they just double the parking. Yeah. So now, in order for me to park for the entire day that I have to park to do this six hour brunch, it costs the same as if I just got a parking ticket. Right. So now I have to go like find a lot, you know, ten blocks away and go park in the lot. I'm not making that much on this gig. So it's like I'm lucky if my tips from the gig are gonna cover just parking. Well, you know, I had a friend uh, in New York City who's a drummer, and he says that when he goes to take a gig, it always costs him money because the cab right, ride right. with the drums. And uh, and on the other one that you were saying, uh, you know, sometimes a comedian will do a hell gig, but then they can make jokes about it. You take any bad experience as a musician. Oh, yeah. I mean, McMurray did it. Alex McMurray yeah. uh, did the Captain Sandy. Yeah. I know, man. But uh, it sounds crazy. It sounds pretty crazy, right? And you go... Yeah, sure, you got a song out of it, but at the same time, in the song, you even say you almost didn't make it out of the whole situation. Yeah. Man, Johnny V talks about that. Johnny V once said... Johnny Vodakovich, local drummer yeah, of repute. Of huge repute. Um, Johnny said one time in a clinic that he used to, and I guess still does, love playing with people who aren't very good. Because he has to work so much harder, and he gets so much better. Trying mm-hmm. to make people who don't sound good sound good, mm-hmm. than if he's just playing with the killer people that you know, he typically plays with. Um, so there's there's a sort of other side of the coin. It's like you're on a terrible gig. It's like, well, if you're on a gig and every everything is terrible, you're probably getting a lot better mm-hmm. than you trying to make it sound good. Than if you were. Or better, maybe in a different way mm-hmm. than if you were playing with a bunch of people who were way better. Um, well, I try to think about like how they say an athlete never goes in 100%. And so it's one of those things. And we're talking about being extraordinary mm-hmm. or whatever. You say like if you're a quarterback and all your receivers are down, but you're still trying to get in the playoffs or you're in the playoffs, you can put the team on your back, right? So if you're the base player and these people keep dropping the ball, you yeah, got to yeah. put the whole team on your back. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you're going to be extraordinary if you, you know, if you're going to try to set the bar to that place mm-hmm. where you want to, you want something for yourself. It's personal. It's got to be personal. You know. Yeah. So, so trying to have that perspective is helpful. Have you had these good things? You said you yeah. had more lows yeah. and highs, which I think I is pretty normal. Yeah, definitely. But you've got to have had some things. I've had I mean, some pretty good highs. Um, the last thing I want to say about the the four pillars is that oh, yes. is that. My funny analogy of being able to make up for one with mm-hmm. the others is that if somebody wanted me to play solo banjo <laughs> on a riverboat in the heat in August in a suit for no money, um, playing circus music with Stevie Wonder, I would take that gig in a fucking heartbeat, right? 
it's the circus music that makes it for you, or is that no? It's negative? Stevie Wonder. It's the Stevie Wonder it's, how it trumps everything. Yeah, I didn't like, know if you were saying you yeah, were. No, I'm music. saying like even if the three pillars of logistics, money, and music are not there, mm-hmm. if I'm playing with Stevie Wonder, I don't care about any of that because he's he's great people. Yeah, or you can see he's great music. Whatever. What I'm saying is that like there are definitely certain ways that um, the other pillars can make up for things. Right. You know. Um, I love the Irma Thomas gig, but there are a lot of times when certain parts of the pillars are not being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. But typically, just the fact that I'm getting to play with Irma can a lot of balances it out. Yeah. Balance it out. So, and I've had a lot of situations where it's like, yeah, and you have too, and everybody does. It's just like either the mute. Sometimes the music's so good when it's just like you can't. It doesn't matter if you're playing for free. On the side of the street, you know, you're, it's, the music's so good, or you're there with your friends, or whatever. Although I tell you, I did a gig one time where I was they're paying me well, mm-hmm. and I was by myself, and there was nobody there, but it was outside, and I said they're paying me well for this, but there's nobody here. It like would I do this same act in an empty warehouse on the West Bank for double? Yeah. You know, I asked yeah, myself yeah. that. I started saying like, well, what is where is the limit? Yeah. To what I like, what if they said we're going to dig a hole? We put you down in the hole. We want you to play solo guitar, but it, man, the pay is great. You know, you're like, well, geez, can I really say who am I to say that I'm better than playing guitar in a hole? I mean, man, I've done a lot of movies where mm-hmm. I get paid exorbitant amounts of money to pretend to play bass. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, that's a great gig. It's a pretty good gig. because it's like, even if there's no music there. The people are kind of irrelevant, but it's like the it's money's so good. It's like you can definitely pay me. I don't even consider that a gig, but like right. you can definitely pay me to just stand with my bass and pretend to play. I'll take that. Like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, and you go there. It's gonna take some. It's gonna take some hours. You know, like, yeah. I'll stand around yeah. as long as you need. You know. It's like, yeah. So that's the logistics. I'm in a commercial for a painting place in Metairie where you like go paint and wine, wine and paint. Oh, or yeah. I, I'm in their commercial. Just pretending to paint something. Pretending to paint? <laughs> yeah. It's not even playing. You were and I was like, oh, that's a gig. I'll, that's I'll make that money. Sure. I was going to say, because usually in the commercials, the yeah, guy yeah. with the upright bass is noticeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Sugar Bear did it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jesse Morrow was in one. Yeah, right? no, I was just pretending to, pretending to paint. Now, great gigs that I've had. Um, what, what's, it doesn't have to be a gig now either. What's the actual question, like musical experience that you enjoy? These are things, when you hit, there are things, I want people out there to know that when you Whenever it is that you go to do something, a lot of these things will tell you find a goal or find what makes you happy and then do that and you'll be happy. But you do what makes you happy, but it doesn't make you happy all the time. There's going oh, to be sure. ups and downs. So I want to make it clear to people yeah. that just oh, because you play Jazz Fest doesn't mean you make a thousand dollars a day. Right. And when they, you do have periods, like everybody has in everything they ever try, oh, yeah. where you go, I should, not only should I quit doing this, but I should have never started doing never this. Started. Yeah. But then at the same time, what I want to remind people of is that you have experiences that you have to hold on to some sort of way. Yep. And if you really do good mental work, you, you can, you, you hold on to them in a conscious way where you go, I can go back to that sometimes so I can remember, uh, to be confident or to remember to be, to how to handle myself in a situation. Um, so what do you, do you have those good experiences and do you make a conscious effort of going back to them? Yeah. I wish I was more conscious of it. Um, right, I it's wish, hard. I wish, I wish I cherished those. I wish I went home and wrote in a diary. Uh, and, said, like, and said, like, wow, today was really magical. 
I played a sharp 11 on the bridge and the guitar player noticed and played it with me. Right. And it sounded cool. Like, you right. know, um, there are moments like that all the time. And it's one of those things that's like, you know, people say it beats laying brick or whatever. It's, and I just can't imagine a better job than the one I have. Which is like, because I've definitely thought about doing something else. Mm -hmm. Because the money's not good. And when it's bad, it's bad. Right. When the music industry is bad, and when being a professional gigging musician is bad, it's terrible. Yes. But when it's good, it's really, really, really good. And at the same time, one thing I keep running into is, like, the life that I have is the one that is best suited for the life that I... For me to, to cultivate the life that I want, mm -hmm. which, is, which is interesting to me. Like, there are a lot of times that I think... Okay, I'm not playing the gigs I want to be playing. I'm not making the money I want to be making. I'm not playing the kind of music I want to be playing. That that's probably my biggest one is that I play a lot of music that I know is not what I would like to be playing. So it's like, oh, why don't I just get a gig at a or you get a day gig at a coffee shop or start doing something else? That way I'll have more time to devote to what I want. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, I own my own business. I can take as much or as little work as I can afford to to take. I make my own hours, more or less, because I I'm, I work completely freelance. What job in the world am I going to have? Does that earn a gig, or you you have an uh, obligation that if the gig comes up, that you have to take it? Or yes, um, for the most part, freelance. for the most part, I'm totally freelance, and you know, there's no gig that I have that I'm going to get. There's no day job I'm going to go get that's going to give me the time flexibility that I have. Plus, like, playing music keeps my chops in shape. So it's like, if I want to work on music that I'm not getting to play or I want to play a different kind of music, that's on me, man. That's yeah. like, I got to make that time and I got to work on that and I got to start making it happen. It's not my job's fault. It's not the fact that I'm playing all these other gigs. It's, you know, maybe I shouldn't play as many gigs or I need to take less work. But it's like, it's not like going to law school is going to make me a better bass player. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I was related to. It's like, man, I should just go to law school. Right. But no, I mean, and I think you would find that in any art. I think you would say, oh, I'm an artist, but I'm not satisfied. I'm an artist working a graphic design job, but I really want to be doing studio work. Mm -hmm. Well, then, when you're not at your graphic design job, work on studio art. But it's not necessarily the graphic design job's fault. And if anything, the graphic design job is probably helping it. It's helping you. you know? I, yeah, there, I don't know if you know about the book uh, called Ignore Everybody. No. But there's a dude who, um, he talks about how people always think, if I could get a year off, I could write my novel. If I get three months right. off, I could do this. But reality, yeah. if you get it, you don't do anything with it. Yeah. And because you didn't want it bad enough. If you wanted it bad enough, you'd take 15 minutes a day. Totally. And put those 15 minutes in and put the, get these. And he was drawing a little business cards and making something out of it. But what you're saying about uh, wanting to do it and being a musician, having extra time to do it as opposed to taking a job that's right. going to take a lot more of your time, uh, keeping your chops up but not necessarily being right what you want to do is exactly what you say. You have um, you have this time. Yeah. The difficulty I think in it is it's like being an athlete, but you don't have a coach. You don't right. have four coaches. You know, specific oh, yeah. coaches, you don't have a trainer, I, a nutritionist, and all yeah, these people. And I, I've said it's so hard when you're self-employed, when you're your own boss, and you don't have a supervisor, it's so hard to measure your own progress. 
because you don't have any external thing to evaluate yourself against. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for me to say, oh, these, this is what I've achieved in an X amount of time because I'm just doing it. It's, I'm living it. Whereas when, like, when you work a job and you fulfill all your duties or whatever, there's a person to say there, standing there at the end of it saying, oh, I'm your boss and you did well today. Mm-hmm. You did a good job today. You did a good job this month. You did a great job this year. Here's an award. Here's this, that, and the other thing. Unless you're trying to win Grammys or whatever, it's very hard. I think and those awards, those are not really awards. Yeah, for yeah. I think I think that's why it's probably important to have. Um, you know, people talk about like making albums, being a signpost along the way. Yeah, that's that stuff is probably really important. I regret not recording more over time because. There were times where I thought, you know, I don't, this sound I know is going somewhere, but like you said, I didn't chronicle what that sound was then, right. and now it's gone. Right. And, uh, I mean, unless you're making a lot of money, there's no, I mean, I have the same amount of money I have, I, I have the same amount of money in my bank account that I had eight years ago when I started doing this. Mm-hmm. I pretty much have nothing to show for what I've done other than my experience and what I know I have in my head. Mm-hmm. Um... Let me ask you about this though. You uh, you were talking about how the frustration in it and how it might, but it's similar to other jobs. And what I realized recently, it was uh, I was watching that Making a Murder. I don't know if you saw that yeah. Netflix thing, but totally. what I realized is like if you want to, let's say you care about helping people and making them healthy, and then you get into the healthcare industry, or if you care about truth and justice, so you become a lawyer, you know, yeah. get to you get into the legal system. It's like none of these things. Is like where you, you open the gate and there's this big meadow of what you wanted. Right. Everyone, you open the door and it's this nightmare of stuff you have to navigate to, and try to hold on to the vision you have of what you wanted before you open that gate in the first place. Yeah. You know, Dave Chappelle says something about uh, where art meets commerce. Yeah. You know? Uh, and I like to say that they, you know, that while they say it's, they call it the music business because it's a business, that they call it music because it's just music. And that people forget that it's music has a business built upon it because it has value. But without that business, it's still music and it still has value. And uh, it, I think it's sad that more people don't get a chance to experience all the different sides of music, playing it with other people, that, you know, doing those type of things. It might not be for everybody, but uh, if it is for you, I think that, like you say, more people should have the opportunity to do it. Yeah, and I think... The, the goods, the highs that I've felt have always been, I don't know, I don't, I've, I, you know, I've had, yeah, a lot of great gigs. I'm trying to think of something that, like, I think about when I'm, when I'm, um, kind of bummed about a bad gig or something, something that I hold on to. Um, Sometimes people will roll you through one of those things, to, you know, you say, oh, I, you know. I don't feel the way I feel, feel like I should feel right now. You say, well, think about a time that you felt the way that you wanted to feel. Right. You know, and there's times where you say, oh, man, that was, that was a good feeling. Yeah. For me, most of it, most of my greatest sort of feeling in music happens in moments where it's probably no one's even paying attention. It's, it's when people are listening to each other. It's the gigs where, like, especially playing a lot of jazz. It's the gigs where everyone in the band is really, really, really listening to each other. Mm-hmm. Is really on board with the same idea. 
I always think of my favorite gigs. I did a couple back when Mimi's used to have music. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a couple with like a singer and a guitar player. And I remember I did a gig one night and we forgot to take breaks. And it was one, of the, and we played like half an hour over because mm-hmm. we were just having so much fun. Yeah. And that was like, and and that is something I always try and uh, hold on to. Um, because, yeah, when it's, when it's fun, it feels really good. I mean, then there's, yeah, doing Jazz Fest, you know, we played before Clapton one time, and there's, like, moments of bigness where it's like, wow, how did I end up here, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and, you know, big audiences and stuff like that. But for me, the gigs that are most rewarding, are just, it's just, like, raw music. Feel good. You of those pillars, yeah. it's that music yeah. pillar. That, or if you, you do have. your own music, I rarely do my own music, but in uh, music that I've written. But mm-hmm. times that I have and it went really well, mm-hmm. like people played, like made my music sound really, really good. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was super rewarding. Um, what about where you ever have where people show appreciation for something you wrote? And you go, ah, that, because, you know, in a way you're performing it, right? You're yeah. performing it. Yeah, man. I if it was self-sufficient, you would just do it. Right. My sister got deployed to Kuwait um, a couple years ago. She she had a daughter who was, at the time, maybe one year old. And she used to sing to me a lot when I was... When I, my sister's much older than I am. And she used to sing to me a lot. No offense. No offense, Christina. Um... She used to sing to me when I was a baby, but she sang to me what was popular in the late 80s with teenage girls, which I guess was Richard Marks. So he, she used to sing me that that song that's like, uh, um, wherever you go, whatever you do, I will be right here waiting for you. So um, my sister was really torn up about having to leave her year-old daughter. I kind of hear the influence now. <laughs> your bass player. Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, she she was pretty torn up about having to leave her year old daughter uh, with my folks and get deployed to Kuwait for six months. So I went into the studio with some really good local players and um, recorded an arrangement of that song, just instrumental, kind of jazzy pop arrangement, like jazz ballad kind of version of the song. Mm-hmm. And man, it's like, and I gave it to her as a Christmas present, like right before she got deployed. And I ruined Christmas. <laughs> it was like totally destroyed her. Too heavy. It was, well, uh, I mean, it was too heavy, but it was obviously heartfelt and it meant a lot to her. Um, and I think doing, it's, it's the stuff like that where what you, where you know that you really touch somebody. She didn't really ruin Christmas. No, but I mean, she was bawling for most of the day on Christmas, like after hearing that. So it was, it was, it was a killer secret Santa present, but it also, it also. So there, there are times like that when it's like, yes, this is what, this is what I got into it for. You know, I, your music can really touch people. It's hard though when you're playing 500 gigs a year, playing for tourists, playing the Saints Go Marching in six times a day. You know, it can be really, it's very easy to become jaded and I can, and 
Yeah, it's a it's a constant struggle. You don't want you don't want to become jaded because you develop bad habits. You, yeah, you know, there's that. Yeah, there's, sure. I mean, besides the obvious reasons, but like musically, I think that if you have if you're in a situation where you start thinking like ah you know whatever you know like if you start thinking that you've got to do something else in like in your mind or you don't do that gig you got to stay in your lane or something because it'll once you start believing like you say well on this gig I don't. I'm, I'm not setting the bar very high because whatever, then you, you don't know how to act. You're not, it'd be like if you were an athlete and you, some of the days at the gym, you just didn't go all the way. It's like, I don't care about my legs. I'm not going to hit the legs that hard, you know? Yeah. So I think, but it's all, once again, you don't have a, you don't have a coach there to scream at you. Sure. You know, you got to look at videos of the rock where he's at the gym at 4am on Thanksgiving by himself. Really? <laughs> you never <laughs> seen those? I got to check it Sounds inspiring. Yeah, it's very inspiring. Yeah. He's always by himself, and he's just so about it. He's ready to go. That's awesome. Man. Do you have what do you what do you? This is where we're getting, man. What do you do that inspires you, musically or outside of music? Do you have a? I love that song sure. that Jay Z does, the Rock Boys. It has the, the Monahan band yeah. horns. That's good. Gets me going. That's good, um, man. I've had. Uh, it's funny, I, I, I talk about this with a lot of people. I had a lot of stuff. You caught me at a really good time. I'm having a really good year. Nice. Not not just this year that just started, but the last few months. Um, I spent a lot of time in my, like, really caught up in stuff that took my brain away from the passion in music. And it's been sort of a crazy, um, crazy few roller coasters with like relationships and like some mental illness stuff and not, not anything fun like drug abuse or anything, but like, just like I've been distracting myself with kind of life a little bit Mm -hmm. and I would find myself, um, you get to that place where you don't even want to hear music anymore, Mm -hmm. doing it so much. And I remember being a teenager, being in college or whatever, when you're you're falling asleep listening to all these great records, you're constantly hunting for new music. You you wanna hear all your favorite stuff. You you have all your favorite record. All you can think is like, man, I can't wait to do this, or I, I wanna be doing this, or this is what I wanna be doing. And I got to a point where like years were going by that I wasn't even listening to music. Mm-hmm. I wasn't buying any albums. Just it it wasn't touching me. And I found was that it was mostly a lot of like personal life stuff with girls and anxiety and, and just a lack of of focus. I think it's, and I'm trying to think of what like if there was anything that got me through. I, re- I remember having a, a really good moment in a breakup, or like after after a breakup, where like I've been just with like a really poisonous person for a long time. I heard two songs one morning. I can't remember. I, maybe I was learning them for a gig. I don't know why I had them on. One was the Amy Winehouse version of Valerie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the slow one. The slow one. And one was that Tedeschi Trucks live thing that Doug Belote was on, um, where they do Midnight in Harlem live. Oh, Dude. And it's just, I just, I lost it. 
I lost. Oh, and then uh, County Kick It came on. <laughs> yeah, right. right. The Tribe Called Quest thing. And I just lost it. And it yeah, felt like for the first time in a really, really long time that I was hearing the music again. And it was like really touching me. And I just, it, it really felt like I had taken earplugs out and I was just hearing it. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I guess the first two songs, they really are emotionally evocative songs. They, yeah. they have sort of this soul blues element. Um, female singers who I kind of tend to connect with more than male singers. And they both get, they both tug your heartstrings a little bit. Mm-hmm. But man, finding, I think that's everybody's sort of personal path, but finding a way to let yourself be emotionally open mm-hmm. to what inspires you mm-hmm. is a huge thing to work toward. I'm loving that you're saying this right now because I feel like I went through a similar thing, except in my case, it wasn't, I, when I got out of the toxic relationship, that wasn't enough. But when I met my wife mm-hmm. and she was living long distance from me and we would send each other songs back and forth because we woke up at different yeah. times. So in the morning when I'd wake up, you know, and I'd send hers at night. So when yeah. she woke up, she'd have one, she'd right. send me one. And like you say, there it was something. It wasn't that I was listening to music again, only because I'd been listening to a lot of just like talk radio, stand-up comedians. Right, that's but I, right. Yeah. But I was listening to, and I think that's important as a songwriter. I do think ideas are important, so there's nothing. I don't mean against that, but I did think there was something weird. And then emotionally, like you say, that when I what I was listening to, it wasn't I was just listening to music. It was that I was allowing myself to feel yeah. these heavy emotions because right. the music. I maybe it's almost the same to you, but it can be so incredibly heavy yeah. that maybe at a certain point when I was in this that other state, I put up these. I was like, I, I can't get that heavy in my emotions. I don't have it's right. like falling off a cliff or something. Yeah. So, but then what happened? You know, I'm, I'm happily married and all that, but I have gone back to just listening to talk radio, and I don't know if it's because I'm playing too many vocational gigs, but I have a lot of different out, you know outlets and so forth. So I don't really I don't know. And when I find something I like, the other things I will. Like, I will grab a particular artist. Uh, Jay-Z is one, oddly enough. Just like an odd mm. word. Because a lot of the wordplay, you know, yeah. as a lyricist. But, or even a guy like Mike Doty, who is not I a... Love but he's not a uh, guitar player, like a shredding guitar player or anything, you know what I mean? But when I start listening to it, I get hooked on it. And I'll listen to it for several months straight or whatever. Mm. And I break off. Yeah, that's a huge one that I, I go back to, like, when I'm really... Sometimes, uh, I think there's something about... I'm not the first one that had this idea that everyone, the music that you fell in love with in high school and college is like super special right. to everyone. That's when you form your opinions about a lot of the stuff you like. Now as, as working musicians, we try to stay open and keep our mind and our feelings open to all kinds of music, but you're, it's never going to feel to you the way that whatever you were listening to when you were 14 felt. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, For me, soul coughing, huge one. I go back whenever I'm just like, a good road trip band for me where I put it in the car and I just like drive this and that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but so I don't I don't exactly know how I became emotionally available, but doing that helped. Another thing that I think is huge, and I think you'll totally agree with me, Jim Singleton. Uh, James Singleton, who's a phenomenal New Orleans bass player, like historically phenomenal. Another uh, dude to Google if you. Yeah, serious. In New Orleans music. Yeah, if you're interested in New Orleans music or playing bass or playing jazz, heavy, heavy, heavy 
legendary guy and a really sweet dude. Um, he got me on to the importance of having your skin in the game, which I think for musicians is you have to be working on something that's yours. Um, whether what is that? I've never heard that's right. Whether it's, whether it's uh, having, uh, having skin in the game is kind of like having a Martin, money mon- on the table. like money on the table. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but for me, that's you. For me, that's composition. Mm-hmm. Like, especially as a bass player, is like you have to have something that you're working on that's yours that you care about. Mm-hmm. So whether it's you're writing your own song or your own arrangement or you're transcribing a solo or you're, um, just so that when you get home. Instead of always working on what everybody else needs, um, you have to have something that you're working on that is for you and that is important to you. Now, hopefully, as an artist, everything you work on is important to you. But as a tradesperson, you also have to be fulfilling the needs of other people and what and what they want. And for years, I was just a sideman, and I just learned stuff that people told me to learn. And yeah, anytime I got sort of the motivation up to to practice, um, I would try and uh, and work on something that was, you know, maybe a lick or a technique or something that I was that I was trying to, to get together. But I think the artists who are most motivated are the ones who are working on a lot of their own stuff. Mm-hmm. However that may come about. Um, and I think the more that I let myself work on the stuff that I care about, the more I work in general. It's kind of like, at one time I had this attitude that's just like, I'm only going to work on what everybody else thinks will make me good, you know? Right. Versus slapping. Yeah, yeah versus, <laughs> versus slapping, which is what I want to do, but yeah, I, I think it's say, awesome. I think but, that everybody, uh, like most people think if you slap the bass really fast that you're good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people, so, yeah, that became a thing. That was crazy. So when I was 16 and right. I was totally in love with Victor Wooten, I was all about like, dude, I'm going to learn to slap blah, blah, Then I go to music school. I get into jazz. I play upright. I learn about James Jamerson and pocket and feel. And mm-hmm. like, oh, actually, you'll get fired from a gig if you slap. Right. So like, actually, I'm just going to play a fingerstyle, like not going to slap at all. And I'm just going to become this working man, like studio bass player who doesn't do anything flashy, but just does the most simple musically appropriate thing. Mm-hmm. Then I'm out in the working world and I'm getting all these gigs with old people because old people love the way that I play. They want me to play the simplest, most like bare bones, meat and potatoes bass. So what I found out was that trad jazz guys like me because I play simply and most traditional jazz bass is fairly simple. And like old timer society gig wedding band guys like me to come play Mardi Gras balls and stuff because I just play the really simple, not flashy stuff. And I think this is great, but now I'm playing with a bunch of moldy figs and old people. So what's going on? No offense then to moldy figs yeah. and old people. Now I, now I, uh, then I got my first gospel gig and the whole script turned upside down. And it was like, yeah, we want you to do a bunch of, and this is kind of like the Irma gig. So I started playing with all the guys in the Irma band who they're listening to Bobby Womack and Frankie Beverly to like uh, really contemporary uh, fusion stuff and Tower Power right. and 
and a lot of gospel chops kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, man, slap, just do more stuff, more flash, more of this, that, and the other thing. And they love that stuff. Right. And it's like, oh, actually, I probably do need to be able to like have some some chops. So, yeah, but what Singleton turned me on to is, like, you have to have something to play when you don't want to play anything else. And I've spent a long time in the last couple of years since he told me that learning what it is that I love, whether it's, like, what are my favorite songs? Um, what are my favorite records to listen to? Um, what are some things that I really want to learn? So, like, I have lists of things that I really want to learn. I have a list of artists that I really want to check out, like a lot of the Soulquarian stuff, mm-hmm. stuff that I'm really interested in learning more about and trying to uh, to listen to a lot of because I'm interested in that music and I want to play more of it. Uh, I have a book that I now bring to my weekly gig at the Collins Hotel that's like my favorite jazz standards because I know I can't go crazy at that hotel, but right. I can play at least the jazz standards that I like to play instead of just having to play a bunch of stuff for tourists. Um, or a bunch of New Orleans music, which I already do my fill of. Mm-hmm. Um, and just ha- so like saying, so I think one thing that most artists do automatically, but I had to make a conscious choice to do, is I had to say, what do I like? Which is not to say, what do I, what don't I like? No, it's much harder. But it's, but it's like, instead of, like for a while, I just had this crazy sort of kind of hippie notion, like, no, I want to be open to everything equally, and I want to just not pass judgment on any of the music I listen to, and just like, nothing's better, and nothing's worse, nothing's good, nothing's bad, it's all just constant vibrations. And it's like, actually, it's incredibly useful to say, I prefer this, and I like what this person is doing, and I like what that person is doing, and I care about that, and I'm up at three in the morning watching this guy on YouTube, because there's something really special about that. And then letting, and this is, I guess, how inspiration works, but for me, inspiration didn't come naturally, or as naturally as I think it comes to many people. For me, it's something where I have to be like, okay, I like that, so now I'm going to chase that. I also think that inspiration doesn't, there's no such thing as inspiration out of the blue, and I think any pop psychology book would agree with me, that you don't sit in a, like the best songwriters the best musicians, the best artists aren't sitting in a cafe somewhere and they're like, oh, I should do that. And then they go do it. Right. That's not how inspiration works. It doesn't just strike like that. When you're working a lot, really hard on stuff that you care about and you're doing a lot of work, in the midst of that is where inspiration strikes. I think it is very hard to to create art without momentum. Mm-hmm. I think it's very hard, you know, I have some friends who are actors who it's just like kind of uh, waiting for a big break, you know, right. it's, or a lot of people, a lot of times what I see and what I've, what I've come to understand about the way that art works is that you can't go from, from nothing to something that you, um, I got to find a better way to articulate <laughs> this, where where for me it was it was it's it's practicing and improving. So for a long time I was just like, okay, I'm not going to practice until I really feel like I have something I want to practice. Okay. Or so then when I did practice, it was mostly just like maintenance, technical exercises and stuff like that, and I wasn't getting any better. 
I played the same major skill exercises from the time I was like in college to several years after college. Mm-hmm. The same etudes, the same licks, the same solos that I had learned. And what I didn't realize is that I had lost just a ton of momentum that I had had early on, like in school, because I was in school and I was surrounded by all this stuff happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just out there in the world kind of floating. And what I've come to realize is that you don't, it doesn't just hit you one day like, oh, I'm going to work really hard on this thing now. What happens is that you have to start working hard on something and keep working hard. And as you do that, it just starts to roll downhill. Right. Like, you know, famous rock star or musician who says, oh, yeah, that song just came to me in a dream or whatever. All right. It didn't come to them in a dream when they were off for six weeks and hadn't touched their instrument. Right. It probably yeah, came to them. There the yeah, it the probably, too. yeah, it, it happened when they were working really hard on something. And right. what I've come to understand regarding my art is that momentum is everything and that I can't break the momentum. When I, like, it's not, right now I'm in the middle of composing a piece. It took, I've been practicing and working um, I've been off a lot this month and it didn't really hit me till yesterday. Like I've been off and I've been getting a lot of work done, mm-hmm. which is different than me being off and like being caught up in non-music stuff. So it hit me just that, that in the process of like, I'm working on 10 things on my music stand right now. And I have like charts all over the place and my house is just in complete shambles. And yesterday I'm going, I was actually going to the bathroom and looking on my phone, and I found this voice memo that I had made a couple months ago mm-hmm. of, of, of a melody that I had thought of or something. And I knew I had written down some of the chords somewhere. And I just, I was cleaning out storage on my phone, and I was going to delete it. And then I listened to the voice memo, and I was like, oh, that does sound like a song. I sit down, eight hours, just completely flew by mm-hmm. of me sitting with the guitar and the piano and the pen and the pencil and the, uh, the computer. And I'm just going through all these ideas and writing a piece. And I was like, I haven't been that raw inspired out of the blue since I was a teenager to just write and create and just like feverish trying to get every idea out and like play with things and put the puzzle together. And it was this act of creative genesis, but it didn't happen over the summer when I'd been on vacation for couple days and like didn't really have many gigs that I cared about like you know or like what it happened over the last few weeks I've had a lot of days off I'm working really hard on I have a transcription going I have some Ellington stuff I'm arranging I'm trying to relearn piano like my college piano stuff and it's just become super important to me that that momentum like uh, Maria Bamford who's my biggest hero We'll, we'll say it. It's like you just do stuff. You just got to do something. She's a comedian. I think I saw you liked her. I tried to watch her, but I didn't care for her. Oh, man. She's my, <laughs> I'll give it a she's my favorite comedian, probably. Um, she do. does a lot of stuff with th- this kind of thing, uh, a lot of sort of Julia Cameron artist's way of like, becoming a better artist. But she also does a lot of her comedies based around her own struggles with mental illness, mm-hmm. which I love. Um, and she just has comedy that's totally 
unlike anything everyone else does. Ah. Um, but she, uh, she has this great thing where she's like, if you want to, I'm going to totally mess up her joke right now, but, uh, she's like, if you want to paint, paint pictures of black sailboats sailing on a black sea at night and be the world's best person at painting black sailboats on a black sea at night, because that's the way you fucking see it, man, then do it. And just do it and keep doing it and fail at it and just mess up and and keep doing it and people are going to make fun of you and fail and you're going to have to start from scratch and you're going to have to keep doing it. And you're going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep drawing the sailboats and it's going to be terrible and it's going to suck and you're, it's going to be you're going to be mad with defeat after defeat after defeat. And then you're going to have some success and then it's going to defeat you more and then you're going to rethink the whole thing and then you're going to do it. And then eventually, years later, someone's going to be like, hey, are you still doing that black sailboat on a blank? Right. And you're going to be like, yeah. And you will be recognized for being the person who does that thing that it is that you do. But it's like, that's kind of the way to me that that it works is like, kind of like you said, it's just this... Um, it's, it's, it's that all the failures add up to success, but also that for me, it's that you can't create something from nothing. You can only create something from something. So for me, what that means is that even if what I'm doing is minimal, I have to be doing something to do something else. Like, in order for me to improve myself, I have to be working at something. Even if I'm failing, even if I'm not working the right way, it's a lot easier to, for me, like, writing music. It's a lot easier to write music when I'm spouting stupid crap into a, a voice memo. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier for me to practice eight hours a day when I practiced six hours the day before that, mm -hmm. four hours the day before that. Um, it's, it's that kind of thing. I think like Seinfeld says, he never turns off the thing, the party that's looking for a joke. Right. And so I said, doesn't that bother your wife? He's like, yes. You know, it really yeah. bothers everyone because I never turn it off. But I see what you're saying on, in terms of you know, being, doing something. Cause if the idea comes to you here, yeah. well, the, you know, it's funny to me about when you talk about taking, if you have time off or having, like, what, uh, getting inspired, is that a lot, I talk to songwriters who have the same thing, experience as I do, where you might have three days off in a row, you've only got three days off in a row, I can really sit down and polish some stuff or whatever, and none of that ever gets accomplished. Right. But then you have a thing you gotta be at, at four, yeah. you're supposed to leave at three, Yeah. you're ready at 2.40, so you just pick up your instrument and you start dicking yeah. around and you go, oh my God, is that the greatest idea I've had in a year? And then you start trying to get, you go, oh, I have 15 minutes to try to get enough of this kind yeah. of organized to have something to come back to. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And But part of that is that you're not, in that moment, you're not saying, okay, here's three days. I have to make something happen. I have to make right. something out of myself in three days. You're just saying, I need to blow 20 minutes and I put my guitar in my hand. Yeah, that's crazy how that works, isn't it? And it's... But I but still think, part of you have to. I think a song comes because you open yourself up to this yeah. database of songs that just the universal song yeah, I call I it. We're, but you have to go through a process yeah. of trying to make yourself open again and again, and eventually, yeah. or sometimes it hits you, sometimes it doesn't. 
You know what Steve Martin said? He said, it's really, really easy to do the, a perfect show, uh, but you just don't get to choose when they happen. Right. It's that type of thing. You have to yeah. Yeah, just keep doing shows. I, I, I dig it. Because, so where this all leads is that that's where success and um, um, being prolific comes into play. Is that if you look at the Mozarts of, of whatever your field is, the guys who are generating all this stuff, the guys who are practicing all the time, who are, are creating all the time, have just been doing this enough. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've had the momentum happening so much that it starts to happen faster and faster. You're process sorts itself out and luck comes into it luck comes into out it. of all the people who are yeah. doing that the ones who are, have more luck get little spurts you know what i mean yeah but but it's like yeah i think i think we're definitely onto something with having to be having to let yourself be available for inspiration because yeah inspiration doesn't work the way that they sell it to you Right. Well, something you just said, though, is something I've been working on myself, right? Which is, you talked about being prolific, yeah. right? Which is, I, I describe it as being productive, yeah. right? Producing something. Yeah. Uh, even if it's just ideas, as a result yeah. of hashing through other ideas. That comes before success, right? So success, yeah. And, and it, in and of itself, it is success. Yeah. But so, if you want to be successful, you have to be uh, productive, for me, I feel like if I want to be productive, I have to be motivated, right. like we were talking about. But the thing that I've come upon recently is that if I want to be motivated, I have to have uh, one of the right moods on in terms of my inner state. <laughs> like, you know how you go outside and it's like really nice weather and you go like, I'm going to do all the things I always was going to do. And you think, like, you know what I mean? You start thinking, like, I'm going to call that guy, I'm going to record that record and I'm going to yeah. start jogging right now, you know? But... When it's cold or when it's hot or when it's very hard, you know, you're not as motivated. So if there was some sort of way to have that mood that that weather gives you or other little other things give you that when you have a wind, something lucky happens, um, then you get uh, motivated. But so for me, it's been a question of how to cultivate that mood. I think the part of it has to do with uh, what you actually eat and ingest, like what you put in yourself. And then like, I know you were exercising today, like I think part of it has to do with exercising and doing um, a holistic thing for your mood. Because then once your mood is right... It's so stupid how right all of our moms were when we were kids. That, like, diet and exercise is totally the most important thing ever. And as we got older, it became like, oh, yeah, I want to fix my diet. Oh, yeah, I need to get back in shape. I totally didn't realize, like, that's the kitten caboodle. That's the whole freaking thing. And I wish I could go back to 16-year-old me and be like, no, really, you need more sleep, you need to eat better, and you need to exercise more. Like, that's not just, like, to get in shape, to blah, blah, blah. That's to solve your life. All your anxiety, fear, depression, mood problems, addictions, whether it's coffee or cocaine, it's all going to get sorted out a lot easier if you just eat right and take care of your body, like, do you have a special, uh, do you have a, uh, routine, do you have a special diet you follow? Uh, no, but I've, I've just, um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, no, I don't have a, I, um, definitely, um, I've read some books that I think are really, really helpful for that. Do you thing. eat shit? Um, Do you eat some straight bullshit, no, like, five times a week? No, I, no, Two I, times a week. no, I love pizza, that's, like, my favorite food, but I'm really trying to eat less of that. Uh, I definitely, when I go to the grocery store, it's, like, um, whole grains and, or, and, uh, Wheat stuff, brown rice, etc. Like mm-hmm. enriched carbohydrates, fibrous heart carbohydrates. I'm trying my New Year's resolution. One of them is to uh, give up red meat and cured meat, which is hard because I eat a lot of bacon. Bacon but is a hard one. Bacon man. is huge. But um, make a turkey sandwich. Yeah, I don't. One thing that I was lucky enough to do is I don't drink much stuff that's bad for me. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Uh, I recently, yeah, like I wasn't much of a drinker. Usually for New Year's, I stopped drinking for a time mm-hmm. last year, like drinking alcohol. Sorry. So a couple years ago, I made it four months. Last year, I made it six months. This year, I'm just seeing how long maybe I'll do a year, um, which has nothing to do with anything other than like oh, save money, don't want to be hungover, it's bad for you, yada, yada, yada. I don't. I don't want to ruin your thing, but uh, what I started doing when I started drinking again yeah. was now I just drink quality tequila, and I don't mix it with anything. That's awesome. And no matter how much of it I drink, I don't get hungover. That's great. I'm and you don't have to drink a lot of it, obviously. Yeah. If you if you don't drink yeah. a lot, you can... You tell, my tolerance right. for anything goes up pretty quick. Right. So that's a, um, not fun. And then I... Uh, so I'm try- So I went from coffee, like I drank a ton of coffee my whole life. And I realized that caffeine was really messing with the whole crash thing. And I was crashing really hard a lot and having a lot of mood swings mm-hmm. um, that were probably caffeine related. So now I'm on to tea. I only do tea or decaf coffee. Tea with like mild amount of caffeine or just green tea? Uh, yeah. Like if I really need something, I'll have black tea. But otherwise, like green tea or uh, white tea. So I'm trying to do more chicken and fish. I don't cook a lot and I eat kind of like, I, I eat like soylent. I eat meals that are just nutritionally important, but don't necessarily taste good. So my diet is mm. not really great. It's I just wish I could do that. like, you know, I also love food. So, and I love eating out. I'm trying to eat out less. Um, so no real particular diet things, but I'm definitely conscious of what I do. I, oh, the big thing is I don't drink any sugary drinks. Mm. The only soda I ever drink is that LaCroix stuff. Right. And then my New Year's resolution is to stop buying that. Because what I realized is uh, I was spending like $20, $30 a month on LaCroix. Right. It was like more than my water bill. Right. Why not just drink water? It's just canned carbonated water. Yeah. I can just drink water. Like, I don't need to drink. Well, you know what I find? I don't know how much lemons are going to cost you over the course of the time, but they say the super healthy rehydrating drink is a lemon juice, half, half a lemon with some honey. You know, I'll try. Yeah. You know what that is? That's lemonade, man. That's lemonade, yeah. <laughs> they it say wake up and drink a cup of lemonade every day. It's supposed to be amazing for you. I like lemonade. I love lemonade. lemonade. Yeah. All I would won't ever drink is tea, water, tequila, yeah. and lemonade. Yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at. It's like tea. You know, I, I would drink, like I do, I make a smoothie sometimes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so I'm trying to be more conscious about it. You know, I have things coming up. Like my dad had high blood pressure when he was 30, so mm-hmm. that's where the caffeine thing was. Like I got to cut caffeine down. Um, 
as I'm approaching that. Um, you know, all this stuff about cured meat and lunch meat causing colon cancer and stuff. I don't want to deal with all that. So. Is cured meat in that doesn't mean smoked meat, or does it? No, I think it means like so whatever they do to turn it into lunch meat. Yeah, you could have told you that wasn't. Yeah, like basically no lunch meat and no bacon. Um, oh, you mean even like if you go to the store and you slice turkey? Well, I think if they, something about like if they slice it for you and it's like grass fed organic stuff, but like the preservatives that they put in like Oscar Mayer lunch oh, meat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I even found out that like the stuff that you get that has no nitrates, all natural, blah, blah, blah. They have this stuff called. I think it's called, I'm totally spouting bogus science right now, so don't actually take this as fact. But they have this stuff called, like, celery powder that they use as a preservative mm-hmm. that is actually still, the FDA just came out with that thing about it. It's, the same, it's the same shit as the nitrates or whatever that they're putting in there. That's the way of the world. But I don't you know. Can't trust the thing. Yeah, right. it's like, you, nothing is, I've basically, like, unless you just eat almonds and kale all day, everything's bad for you to some degree. So. Can't eat that many almonds, man, that's not <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, it's tricky uh, if you want to be a perfectionist about it, but at least being, um, I think that's always a thing, right? If you, you want to be aware of it, or it's like we were talking about, we sit down and write some music. If you could get yourself in the mindset yeah. on those three days off that you're in yeah. when you have 20 minutes before work, um, or the same thing, like if when you get up there in front of, uh, you read the uh, uh, Effortless Mastery, oh. I'm sure you read it. So you talk about these things where you, you, you know, it's another great book for people to read, um, especially great for performing, you know, cause you're talking about, uh, what kind of mental state you're in sometimes when you get into a, a big show or a big situation, you go, Oh, I have to be better than I was or better than yeah, I have to be better than I am. Yeah. And then that's, that's a hard thing to do. But you go, if you can remind yourself that even if you were a little better, you probably sound essentially the same as you do. You know what, what I was I was thinking about when you asked me about like the great gigs mm-hmm. is like when I think about some of the gigs that I played where we played the last note of this last song and the audience went nuts and people were just losing it and whether it was fifteen thousand people or five people like everyone really dug it and I knew that we had done a good job as a band or mm-hmm. that I had done a good job. Most of the time, I was hardly like I wasn't sweating at the music. Yeah. Like it was all very, it was very easy. Mm-hmm. I never feel like I finish a gig and I go, oh, that was a really hard gig. And I get a huge audience response. It's when I finish a gig and I'm like, oh, that was, that was Kate. Like for me playing, for me playing Jazz Fest for 15,000 people is so easy. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, whether it's the pop music that's easier than the jazz music I play or whether it's with, Irma or uh, what? It's just like getting like off stage. Yeah, it's like an hour. <laughs> that is so much easier than sort of uh, some gigs that I play for for no people, mm-hmm. but where it's a lot of hard work for one reason or another. But I know when I finish a good good gig, it generally feels like I didn't work that hard. Is I think like when the when a uh, team football team says, oh, everything's clicking. Yeah. Everything's just clicking. It's like, well, you think you're yeah. doing the same stuff. Yeah. But it just seems more effortless. That's the other thing that I, that I point out to people. And it's so funny to me. And I always know like when I'm playing with a really good band, 
It's because when I'm done with the gig, I don't. I feel like I could do it all over again. Mm-hmm. It feels like it wasn't hard at all. But I know a guy. He's a um, uh, he lives in New York. He's an upright dude. He played on cruise ships and stuff. Yeah. You know, his whole life. But he had other. He did other stuff. He did that for like to keep his money safe and all that. But he would have a thing. He said that he would do this. I he's where if he enjoyed himself, like you're talking about, he would say it's a pleasure playing with you. You shake the guy's hand. Yeah. But if he didn't, he would just you'd shake the guy's hand, he'd do everything the same except for he'd say it was a pressure playing against you. Yeah, 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 yeah right. And just a little subtle dig at the guy or yeah. like to get his frustrated. I don't know what it was, but it is strange how night and day it can be. Oh, totally. Where you're like, wow, I've worked really, really hard, and I didn't get anything hardly out of it. Right. Versus I didn't do anything, and, I, and everything came to me. Yeah. But I do think that think that like focusing on those good ones, or I think it, it, you still have to come back to the thing I was saying before about if you want to be extraordinary, you have to do what ordinary people are not going to do. And an ordinary person is going to take that gig and let it beat them up. Rather than you say, this is terrible, I'm working really, really hard. If you can remind yourself, I'm working really, really hard because I'm trying to be something better than if I would just let myself go, fuck it, this is stupid. Fuck. Yeah, I think there, I think there's something to that. I, th- I think there's absolutely, I think there's something to it. If you look at, one time I watched a guy, uh, he was talking to Victor Wooten. And he was trying to get, like, the double thumb technique that Victor is famous for. Mm-hmm. And he was, like, trying to get it. And he said, man, I've been, he was, like, trying to show Victor's giving him some pointers. He says, yeah, man, I've been doing it for, like, three weeks, and I can't really, it's not really clicking. And Victor's like, okay, great, I've been doing it for 40 years. Right. So just keep at it, and you'll be all right. And it's like, that's an extraordinary thing. When you think about the people who perform at the highest levels, always are the people who were willing to do insane things to get to that high level. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's, I, I mean, getting into, digging into your techniques or the music that you're playing, you know, I mean, think about, look, I'm looking at your, you have what most people would consider an insane <laughs> amount of records, books about music. I'm just looking around this room. You've got a, what most people would consider a library of, well, I have a lot of these books. These are good books. Um, it, you know, you have more guitars than any sane person would have in this room. And it's like They're that. on purpose. Yeah. And it's, 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 and it's, yeah. How many guitars do you need? Uh, one more. One more, right? Uh, <laughs> That's uh, a lot more. Yeah. And, and it's, <laughs> it's, and it's that, in order to be extraordinary, and I think if you look at the people who are extraordinary, they've done the most extraordinary things. When you look at that crazy kid in the YouTube video who has the ridiculous ear training thing that he's done. Have you seen this video? No, I haven't seen it. It's this kid whose father is a musician and sort of a scientist, from what I gather, mm-hmm. uh, who trained his son from the time he was in the womb to listen to very, very sophisticated and harmonically complex music. Mm -hmm. Coupling this radical exposure to like really crazy atonal classical music, just all kinds of stuff, combined with really fervent musical training from Mm -hmm. a really young age, 
this kid has not only developed perfect pitch, but he's trained it to a frightening degree. That his dad can play just like note clusters and polychords and stuff. I'll tell you and these kids just one after another. You t- it's amazing to watch them do it. Because, I mean, it's stuff that I couldn't hear in a million years. Right. This kid, I mean, he's like, you know, E augmented 13 over G flat, you know, like crazy, just instantly recognizing these really complex chords. And it's totally extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, he did something extraordinary, which was he trained his very malleable brain as he was an infant, like a premature, or a, you know, neonate. He trained his brain to be wired this way. Right. And it's like if you look at Victor Wooden, he did something extraordinary. He started playing in a touring R&B band when he was two years old with his brothers. Right. So, of course, he's going to be ridiculously good. Like, you know, so I think we all have to decide as artists, like, what, what are we chasing and what extraordinary thing do we have to do? Maybe, in, and I guess that's where sacrifice comes in, and say, like, this is the amount of extraordinary that I'm willing to expend for what I want to be, and you'll probably end up being that extraordinary. Now, yes, then we have the outliers stuff where luck comes into play, time comes into play, place, opportunity, that kind of stuff. Right. But, but um, Bill Gates was extraordinary, yes, because he was in the right place at the right time, but he also worked really hard at being extraordinary at this really at this one thing that came in to be came to be the thing that was needed at that time. He caught up with place. him. Yeah. So um, I really have to go to the bathroom. Can I see yeah. Hey, what, real quick. Well, hey, let, let's do this because I got to kind of shut it down pretty quick. That's cool. Um, we can wrap it. Let's know. wrap it. Can okay. That? Yeah. Um, what was the last thing you just said? I'll cut this. Oh, just, uh, Bill Gates, uh, Bill Gates was extraordinary. Was extraordinary because he did extraordinary things. Extraordinary. He did things that other people didn't do. Well, look, it may not, all right, let's see if I can do it. Look, it may not feel like it, but, uh, in a way, I think that you, by coming on here, this podcast, the Truth Is Done podcast, and, uh, and just talking honestly with me, that that's an extraordinary thing because I think when people out there hear, People speaking honestly, it emboldens them to be more honest. And when they hear people taking risks or doing things and following their passions and all these, and know that it's not just an easy road, I think it helps motivate people. It certainly motivates me. And thank you for being here, Ted Long. Thanks for doing it, man. I'll have to have you back so we could uh, tie more of these ends, man. We got a lot of things we talked about here. This was good. Thank you, man. Back there to the right, to the left. Love. Love.